It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to More Outdoors on News Talk 560 KLVI. This is Chester Moore. There are a lot of things happening in the world of feral hogs right now. We've detailed some of these things on the program this year, but there's a lot of crazy stuff, literally decisions being made on the future of hog management right now. And More Outdoors and News Talk 560 KLVI has been on the cutting edge of this. Literally right now, the decisions being made about using hog toxicants in Texas. There are decisions being made in different private areas about paying people to go in and do hog control and how this problem is going to be alleviated because the drought this year uh, caused some really interesting movement of hogs looking for water and showing up some areas where there weren't as many. And that made people... And some of these areas around river corridors and even in cities and things like this in central Texas just like freak out because, oh my God, these hogs are everywhere. Well, we're going to talk tonight about the different aspects of hog control. And I can guarantee you the stuff you're going to hear tonight has not been talked about on any other program. We have several different hog experts in different uh, parts of responsibility and just even hog hunters who have ideas talking about hog control at levels you probably never thought of. And to start off, we're going to talk about hog toxicants with Dr. Tomacek from Texas AgriLife. And um, on the line right now, we have Dr. John Tomacek with the AgriLife Extension Service in the Department of Range and Wildlife and Fisheries Management. Uh, thanks for taking some time to talk about a complicated wildlife issue. Yep. No, not a problem. Glad to be here. All right. The first time that I remember, um, you know, the idea of using a toxicant for hogs coming into radar recently was when I think Kaput came on a few years back and there was a, a warfarin based um, uh, offering that was eventually shelved. Can you tell a little bit about that before we get going on the new thing? Uh, yeah, so so a couple of things, you know, both the the warfarin based pig toxicant uh, mm -hmm. as a concept's been around for a long time. Australia yeah. used one mm -hmm. years ago, mm -hmm. um, as well as the sodium nitrite based toxicant, which is currently being used in Australia and New Zealand. You know, that one was in development for a long time as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Kaput product is a warfarin based toxicant, and that was what we worked with in this trial. Mm -hmm. And I think most people who have barns and stuff are probably somewhat familiar with warfarin because it's often used for like rats and mice. Yeah. So warfarin is a, is a very old pesticide. It was introduced mm -hmm. in the 1940s for rodents of, of all kinds, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's kind of that first generation of anticoagulant pesticide. Well, the hog story itself is just fascinating to me because I'm 49. 
And growing up here in Southeast Texas, I never saw a feral hog in person. And I hunted my whole life until I was like 25. Um, they were kind of relegated to creek and river bottoms, mainly certain areas. And mm -hmm. people would see them. But in, in sometime in the late 90s, it was like there was this gigantic explosion of hogs everywhere. And um, I've heard, you know, population estimates of Texas everywhere from like a million and a half, which is way too low to about 5 million. And I think the number I hear currently is around three. But in terms of before we go deeper into like the toxin issue, just in the development of hogs, I mean, do you have any idea how many hogs on the range uh, in a certain area you'd have to, you know, take out every year to stop population growth? So there's been some work done on that in times past. And, mm -hmm. and like everything in biology, the answer is it depends. Much of it, it depends on how many pigs you're starting with. Uh, certainly when you get down to the last few pigs in an area, although there's not very many, it takes quite a lot of effort to get rid of the last ones. That's one of the pervasive issues of getting rid of pigs. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to how many you've got to kill on the landscape every year to stop growth, there's a number that's often bannered around, which is, you know, 70% or 66%. And, and that one is, to be honest with you, kind of a a widely propagated myth that doesn't have a lot of basis in, in good math. Okay. So there is a, there is a number that you have to remove, but it's much less than that. And I always like to emphasize to people that the cost of doing nothing is far worse. So folks say, well, you know, if it was 30% or if it was 70%, I still can't kill that many pigs. So mm -hmm. why bother? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is simply the cost of doing nothing is that you let that reproduction continue uninhibited the damages go up, the problem grows. So I tell everybody, I don't care who you are. If you're doing the best you can do with pig management, you're still doing better than nothing. Yeah. It's interesting here on having hunted, you know, hunting clubs in Southeast Texas my whole life that you'll have three or four years of just like hog inundation. And then for like two years, no one even sees one on a game camera. It's like they yep. just picked up and left somewhere. So there's definitely some kind of mobility to some hog populations. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they are. You know, and, and I would tell people too, places you expect to see them sometimes, you just never see them. Mm -hmm. and, and they're extremely uh, adept at moving for resource availability. So they're mm -hmm. going to move around out there to find where the best food is. And in many ways, they're going to stay tied to water because they don't, don't have an option, right? They yeah. have a, high, a pretty high water requirement. Mm -hmm. uh, unlike some animals that can get by without a whole lot of water, coyotes being one of them. Coyotes need very, very little free water to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting now since our part of the state in particular is having a mega drought. Yep. And um, I was out on my lease, which has a decent amount of water on it, and I didn't see any hog sign. But I'm sure the, some guys down the road with a big swamp are probably inundated. But oh, yeah. you know, I just want to you know, really just emphasize the fact that these animals are prolific. They're, they're very hardy. They're mobile. They're a, they're a whole different kind of animal to deal with. And like even managing a native game species like a white-tailed deer, just a whole lot more variability here. And the news release that we're going to be basing this out of came in August 31st. And the headline is Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Study Shows Toxicant Effective Tool to Reduce Feral Hog Population. So tell us about this particular tool and kind of go into the trials of it. Yeah, sure. So back in 2021, uh, we were asked to conduct a two-year field trial of the warfarin-based toxicant Kaput. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and to emphasize, you know, the company that makes it, there are a number of products they make that are called Kaput. And, yeah. and then this is their feral hog uh, bait is what it's called. Okay. 
And, and so this toxicant is warfarin based, but it's an extraordinarily low concentration of warfarin. So mm -hmm. it is uh, very much less than what you'll find in commercial rat poisons. You know, it's a tenth of the amount of warfarin that you can go buy off the shelf at Walmart for rats right now. Mm -hmm. and, and the bait matrix or the stuff that's in it essentially is a mixture of attractants, mm -hmm. uh, a, you know, vegetative matter, bone meal, that kind of thing to get pigs interested in it. So what we were really tasked with was getting it out into private applicators' hands, so private mm -hmm. people, right, with a pesticide applicator's license, mm -hmm. on private properties to see if it could make a real difference in the number of pigs on their property or just the damages they experience. Because as we all know, sometimes you can get rid of a whole lot of pigs and the damages don't seem to change. And sometimes... Mm -hmm the damages go away, even though there's still a lot of pigs out there, as you mm -hmm. point out, they can be somewhat unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that was what we were tasked with was getting it out there to see what it would do. Mm -hmm. And so we operated all across the state, every eco region from, from the mountains in West Texas down to the coastal swamps in your part of the country, high plains, deep South Texas, we were everywhere. And it says 23 sites. So that's 20, pretty extensive. 23 sites. Yep. And that's, mm -hmm. We worked on properties that were large enough. We had a reasonable expectation the pigs would not leave that property. Um, and that was just out of courtesy to landowners and neighbors, right? So you, you don't want to be out there field testing a product that's not out for public yet and have a pig wander onto somebody's uh, neighboring property. Sure. Now, the thing I'll point out, which I like to remind everybody with this product, is that with warfarin, um, the, the warfarin itself doesn't have any kind of dye or anything in it, but the, the product has this blue dye mm -hmm. that when an animal eats it, their, their fat tissue, their adipose tissue mm -hmm. gets dyed bright blue. And if you're, you're my age and, and you're about my age, if you, if you remember the Smurfs from when we were young, for sure, it's it Smurf blue. I okay. it's not, and you can't miss it. So you can even see this blue dye in the cartilage of the ears, even before you cut a pig open, you can see mm -hmm. a faint bit of blue. And even in joints, it will end up dyeing the fluid in the joints blue. So long after that animal's dead, the, the bone around the joint is dyed blue. Is the that I something that was put in this talk in this particular bait uh, on purpose like that? For that reason, so that somebody yep. could tell something had been poisoned uh, mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. this stuff. And my point is, with it dying the bones even, you know, long after that animal has been scavenged, it will still mm -hmm. be living. Hmm. Uh, the thing I would point out, though, is this dye has been around forever. If you go buy rat poison at Walmart and it's that kind of tealish blue color, yeah. same, same dye. The dye was developed many years ago for a project in California when we come back on More Outdoors, we'll talk more about hog control with several key experts. Welcome back to More Outdoors on News Talk 560 KLVI. This is Chester Moore. We're talking about various aspects of feral hog control that have sort of busted out this year that are emerging and some things that no one else is talking about. So we're taking some interviews with key experts, several different key experts from hunters, to biologists, to geneticists. Wait to hear the geneticists in the next segment. We're going to continue our conversation right now with Dr. Tomacek with Texas AgriLife. Where there were some folks that were uh, not doing very well, that were scavenging some rodents that were being poisoned, and it mm. was with a totally different chemical, much more harmful. And the concern was that somebody would eat one of those and get sick. So mm -hmm. the dye is just a you know safety measure. Um, but when we put this product out, all across the state, 
throughout the year. And pretty universally, if folks followed the instructions and best practices for application, where they were diligent at keeping that feeder full, diligent at getting the pigs trained to using it, they had pretty good success. Uh, we had a, several properties that were very diligent, very careful with their application mm-hmm. that, as far as we could tell, either killed all the pigs on their property or they significantly reduced numbers to the point where the damages were noticeably different. The pigs they were encountering on the property were noticeably different. Now on this, I want to get people's uh, focus here on how the bait is dispersed. Is this, mm-hmm. is this something you put in a corn feeder or some kind of specific or a protein feeder or something that uh, great question. So, mm-hmm. so the product is in it and on the, the label from the EPA, the registration, mm-hmm. it specifies mm-hmm. there are two feeder options. Okay. Uh, one is a guillotine style feeder that's made out of pretty heavy steel. And the other is a modified commercial pig feeder. So if you ever had show pigs or domestic swine, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's got a flip lid. Now that one's modified with a heavy steel bar to keep the door closed. And the trick there was to make sure that nothing but pigs could get into it. Mm -hmm. And remember the manufacturer of this product worked on this for many years in their Mm -hmm. own R and D. So you have to put it out in this particular feeder. Now, one thing that we did learn in this trial, which won't surprise anybody the, the application instructions specify that you need to open the, the feeder up, fill it with just corn to get pigs used to using it. Mm-hmm. And then once they're used to using it, you close it and then they will open it and eat out of it. Okay. And that is true. But in fact, what we needed was to close the, the opening just a little bit more than completely open to get it to where the pigs could see corn, but they had to stick their head in and lift the door just a little bit to get to that bait. And that trained Mm -hmm. them pretty quick. Mm -hmm. That's going to help if this thing comes to market, it's going to help with, with efficacy and getting pigs trained. But yeah, Mm -hmm. you had to have something that only pigs could get into. And we didn't have any issues with non-target animals accessing the bait as long as that feeder was working well. Okay. My question on non-target animals is, Several on that, but we'll get to, but there's one that, that with the pig thing, that's a special concern to me. And that is javelinas in South Texas. You know, it's a great question. We use this around javelinas and, mm-hmm. and I've got photos of javelinas sleeping around the feeder, mm-hmm. but not able to get into it. Because, you know, I mean, there's parks and wildlife studies showing that, you know, in 1930 javelinas are all the way to Oklahoma. Now they're South San Antonio. Sure. And even that, you know, I know I've been on hunting ranches where they were like, you know, shoot all the javelinas. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's I'm not going to do that. You know, I, no, if I kill yeah. a javelina, I'll kill one to eat, you know. Right. And, and I remind everybody, since you brought it up and mm-hmm. since we're on this this particular radio broadcast, javelinas are a game animal mm-hmm. in Texas yep. with, you know, you, you've got limits. You've got a and, and most importantly, you have mm-hmm. the impetus on you to make use of the edible parts of that animal. Absolutely. So it is. It is not okay to shoot one and let it lay. And we don't have the damage issues with javelinas that we do with pigs. That, that animal close. meant to be here. Yeah. Right. They're, exactly. na- they're a native game. And, okay. um, and you know, if maybe if you're not familiar with deep South Texas or Trans-Pecos hunting, you've never come across a javelina. Right. But they are a native animal. And that was one of my concerns because of their, they have a lot of the same dietary yeah. stuff yeah, absolutely. And, and behavior absolutely. and things like that. Yeah. We, we worried about that too. And, and honestly, that's one of the great things about this trial because we ran placebo versions of the bait before we use the the quote-unquote hot product you know the toxic Mm -hmm. product Mm -hmm. so it's everything's the same just no toxicant in it and that was one of our question was you know are we going to have issues with javelinas learning how to open these doors Mm -hmm. we didn't have that issue 
Mm-hmm. And that is something that I, I really want to emphasize with folks. You know, they were there, they were around it, but once pigs were using it, we didn't have any issues with Havies getting into it. And again, you, you remind folks, they are a native game animal. Native game animal. That animal can be delicious when prepared correctly. So mm-hmm. don't, don't listen to the old, old wisdom of, you know, oh, you, you cook a, you know, javelina backstrap and a board and you throw yeah. it in that strap and eat the board. No, nah, that's not true at all. No, I think they're amazing animals, and that's that was that's one of my primary concerns in the beginning. But hog toxins, because I'm like, oh lord, right? Some these, oh, yeah, you know, some sure. of these places down there now with javelina obviously being more like that. What about um, how like crumbs of this getting out and you know, birds, or maybe even turkeys or deer or something? What what right, were some of the results of that? That's a great question. So we we actually kept a pretty close eye on on the kind of the crumbles and the crumbs that were out there. Yeah, and pigs are remarkably efficient at cleaning this stuff up. There was so little out there, mm-hmm. we had a hard time finding it. We had to get and and I'll use these units of measure since we're on this broadcast. I had to get out my reloading scale to measure it in grains because it was so light the amount mm-hmm. we could find. So we're picking it up with tweezers and mm-hmm. putting it in a in a dish. Very, very little left. And the thing about this chemical that I would remind you also, it is it is not acutely toxic. Mm-hmm. So you actually have to eat doses of this over several days, and you have to eat a fair amount of it to have any effect. Uh, the, the data that the manufacturer published was something, you know, with wild turkeys, for example, mm-hmm. a, a wild turkey would have to eat 20 pounds of this stuff a day for several days. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't think a turkey's capable of doing that. No. But but we did not have really any issue with much in the way of crumbs out there. The stuff mm-hmm. was cleaned up pretty efficiently. Now, something that's coming back in Texas, especially in the Trans-Pecos and the Northeast Texas, is black bears. Mm-hmm. Um, was, there any, was there any of this put out in an area where there are potential black bear encounters with it? So that's a great question. This We, we have never solved the issue of a pig-specific feeder that bears can't get into because yeah. of bear's dexterity. Mm-hmm. So we specifically did not use this product around bears. Now, we were mm-hmm. in regions of the state where there are bears, mm-hmm. but we were very diligent ahead of time, making sure there were no bears out there. Mm-hmm. No one had seen a bear. There was no bear sign. And what we told the, the landowners, the applicators was, mm-hmm. if for some reason there's any indication of a bear around, you shut it down. Mm-hmm. And that That's- was, and again, to emphasize we didn't have any bears around, but even mm-hmm. if a bear had gotten in, a single feeding would not be enough to hurt it. Now, a question that I've gotten several times since this was been brought up is about like hog goes in a couple of times, eats some of this stuff, hunter shoots the hog. And yeah. uh, what are the chances of having problem with, you know, consumption of the meat and how long would it take for the meat, the fat to get blue? So the fat turns blue, to be honest with you, within hours. Uh, oh, wow. And that's that's not from our work. That was from some work that the manufacturer did up in the mm-hmm. panhandle a few years back. Interesting. Uh, but it turns blue very, very fast. Wow. Uh, and, and pretty noticeably so. I was shocked. Um, mm-hmm. But I would also emphasize that we did not evaluate residues of warfarin in meat. Um, what I can tell you about the chemical itself is that mm-hmm. it is processed pretty darn quickly by the liver. Mm-hmm. And from studies that have been done, actually in Europe of all places, there's not a lot of warfarin or anything like that that shows up in, mm-hmm. in muscle and meat. Mm-hmm. But again, we didn't look at any of that. We weren't, uh, that was not just within the scope of our study, but that is one of those things that if folks are concerned about the blue dye is there, right? The blue dye is going to be obvious. 
Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of um, de- the delivery system here, is this something that's going to be like l- legislated or regulated that you have to use certain kind of delivery systems? So, you know, remember this product got an EPA registration back in 2017, and that mm-hmm. EPA label specifies the feeder apparatus. Okay. So, like, it wouldn't be legal just to chop it up and put it in a regular deer feeder or something. Right. So EPA registration is pretty clear on that. And, mm-hmm. and again, this is one of those where you've really got to train pigs to use it. So mm-hmm. I would emphasize to people, not only would that be a violation, there's no state label right now. That's that's Texas Department of Ag's business. We, mm-hmm. we don't know what that may or may not look like. Mm-hmm. But just from a federal label perspective, that would not be OK. But it also wouldn't be effective. You would just be mm-hmm. throwing money out. We appreciate Dr. Tomachek giving us some great information about the hog toxicant issue in Texas and um, also just how toxicants work. And you can make up your own mind. Do you support this? Do you not support it? Shoot me an email at chester at chestermore.com. Give me your opinion on using toxins for hogs. We come back. We have a genetic researcher involved in cloning that's going to talk about potential for feral hog control. Welcome back to more Outdoors on News Talk 560 KLVI. This is Chester Moore with a special program talking about all the things that have converged in the last year about feral hog control in Texas and beyond, ranging from hog toxicants. And if you missed the last two segments, go to the podcast, klvi.com. Go to the podcast link, you'll see the archive. Fascinating stuff directly from the people that are overseeing some of these things. So really interesting stuff about hog toxicants from the legal perspective, the scientific perspective. But this is one that blew my mind. It is from Ben Novak from Revive and Restore, who's involved in the cloning of the black-footed ferret for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I asked him if there was any potential for using genetic tinkering, so to speak, to control feral hogs, and we have his answer. Really interesting stuff. I promise you're not going to hear anywhere else. Now, on the other side of the thing, we talked about, you know, like like plague came from Asia. Let's talk about an invasive animal like a feral hog that causes a lot of damage to a lot of animals' habitat. Could it be possible to create some kind of a genetic line of feral hogs introduced into a population, let's say maybe on an island where they're causing a lot of problems? Yeah. And... They're more susceptible to uh, heart disease or something else natural out there that maybe they have immunity to. Is that has that ever been thought about? Has that been discussed in terms of uh, in the genetic conservation community? It's actually probably the hottest topic right now yeah. in in the in the biotech conservation space. Mm-hmm. It's it's heavily controversial, and there's a lot of sure. debates going on with how to tackle it because there are some potential solutions to these invasive species that mm-hmm. that. W- you know, have some big pros and some potential serious cons. Yeah. Um, I definitely fall into, uh, I fall into a, a particular camp, um, that, that is not really a part of the debates a lot. Happy to share that here. Um, but yeah, like feral hogs, feral goats, um, mm-hmm. on islands, uh, cause huge amounts of problems for native wildlife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, and feral rodents too. And right now the best means of going out and eliminating those populations is by actually going out rifle in hand. It happens all the time here. I'm trying to kill them by my property because we like to barbecue them here in Texas. So, and it's tough, right? I mean, (laughs) 
A feral animal can go anywhere a human being cannot. Exactly. You know, people are using choppers on islands to go get these animals. Yeah, the thing is, tough. you leave one pregnant female. It's over. They're, they're going to come back and, in a year. <laughs> and and you have to do it all over again. The alternate is, you know, poison and toxins. Yeah. And it works, but inevitably you're going to lose some collateral damage. For sure. Um, you know, some native species that you want around are going to be there. Mm-hmm. And either method, you know, is is ultimately not humane. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm a hunter myself. There's there's no there's no one in the world that can provide an incredibly swift uh, uh, kill on a wild animal. We can do it better than any predator mm-hmm. in the world. You know, we're not tearing animals well, up. I've, with, I've taken some hogs claws. out pretty quick, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but it is impossible to just like humanely yeah. do it the way a veterinarian does mm-hmm. in a clinic. Right. And, and, and toxins are, are the, are the far worse option. By you know, far. Yeah. There's a lot of controversy over that in Texas right now with the USDA tests and stuff like that, you know? A lot of division on that eye, but I had to ask about the genetic. Just is that is that even a a possibility yeah. in the future? So the big pro to these new potential genetic solutions, things like gene drives, um, is that they're humane. Uh, animals don't end up dying horrible deaths, and and the animal spreads the solution for you. You don't, as a human being, need to try and find every nook and cranny these animals get to because the animals are simply spreading the tool by breeding. And the most popular version of this is what's called a sex-biasing gene drive. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be gene drive oh, either. Nice. I'll explain the difference. The idea of a drive is that you know when a when when a male breeds and has offspring in mammals he passes on the y chromosome which makes males mm-hmm. half of his offspring become male half are female and that's usually how it goes with every gene right you got a 50% chance of getting it from your mom or your dad a gene drive which happened naturally there's ways these are selfish genes mm-hmm. genes that figure out a way to bypass the system will actually be inherited at rates of anywhere from 60 to 70 to 95% they figure out a way to 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 beat the odds. And with CRISPR-Cas9 technologies, we now have the power to actually harness and, and do that ourselves, where we could take the genes that make a male and make them actually duplicate themselves into all the offspring so that even the genetically female offspring end up inheriting a male gene mm-hmm. and become male. So over several generations the entire population becomes male Mm -hmm. and just dies out after the last generation, you know, lives out its life expectancy. Um, and so that's, that's a really attractive option, but people are always worried that, okay, well, what if one of these gene drive animals escapes the Island where you want to eradicate them and gets to somewhere where you actually want those animals around? Um, how do you build in safeguards? Now, there's ways to, to actually prevent and slow that spread. There's other options that don't drive. There's something called, a, a, say, the W shredder, where you would actually design CRISPR-Cas9 on the Y chromosome that goes out and actually attacks and cuts up the W chromosome so that only Y-carrying sperm end up mm-hmm. passing on, and you once again get only males. But it's, it's, it's a little slower to build up in the population, um, there's a lot of different mechanisms for it. Ultimately, I think a lot of people are are forgetting that we don't have to build in genetic barriers at a molecular level for, for to make all of this stuff safe. Mm-hmm. Biosecurity measures do work. 
um, there are islands out there in the world where feral rats or goats or other animals have been eradicated the old-fashioned way mm-hmm. and have been free of those for decades now because people put biosecurity measures in place to prevent those animals from getting back mm-hmm. to those places. You know, I think a combination of using landscape uh, and human intervention and these gene drives uh, will, will, will be able to allow us to implement these in the wild in a very restricted, localized way to humanely and effectively control our invasive species, which is one of the biggest problems we have to deal with mm-hmm. right now on mm-hmm. islands, especially, but also, you know, oh, sure. on the mainland. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, just mentioned because islands not only have, you, know, you mentioned the feral hogs like rats up in somewhere in the, the Pacific, yeah. their areas where Norway rats have showed up because of ships and, and foxes and all kind of stuff. And have ruined bird populations and different things like that. So you know, shared it's it's shared techniques and whatnot. But but you know, yeah, these these biotechnologies create these extremely different potential uh, uh, avenues for helping wild species. This is fascinating stuff, folks, and that's why you need to listen to more outdoors here on News Talk Five Sixty KLVI via the iHeartRadio app, and follow me at the Chester Moore on Instagram as well as Higher Calling Wildlife on Facebook for cutting-edge wildlife information. Welcome back to more Outdoors on News Talk 560 KLVI. This is Chester Moore. Tonight's program has been talking with different experts about hog control, things going on sort of legally, scientifically, cutting-edge, potential for future even genetic control. I mean, just really wild stuff. But a basic aspect of this is hogs going into the wild. And how much does people releasing hogs, even domestic hogs getting out, contribute to the feral hog population? How long does it take for a feral hog to go wild? We have an interesting answer with Dr. Jack Mayer. This guy is literally the world's top hog expert. And his answer on hogs growing in the wild is fascinating. Now, the first thing I got to ask you is, um, what made you want to start researching hogs? Well, uh, it's starting, well, I'm a hunter, so that's, that kind of started it. And, uh, I, when I was in high school, I lived over in Germany and of course they've got wild boar over there and and Mm -hmm. we were able to hunt them there. And when I got into college and I got in my senior year, I was looking for a research topic and, Mm -hmm. Again, that hunting interest and in, in wild boar, wild pigs, uh, that got it started. And I start, so I started looking into that. And the more I looked, the less I found. And I mm. was kind of curious that, gosh, these things are, are scattered throughout the U.S. right now. And there's not that much about them. So I decided mm. I'm going to start trying to figure out some of that information myself. That started in the spring of 1973. And I've just been doing that ever since. Yeah, and there seems to be an endless amount to learn as their populations are spreading across and different kinds of conflict and things are arising. These animals obviously originally came over. Uh, Spanish explorers brought a food source. I believe it was in Florida and in, in, in Texas. And, of course, people had hog, uh, you know, that they just kind of let run loose their stock over the years and around hogs up every year but it's interesting because i think a lot of people that don't hunt in particular kind of think that hogs are a native animal of the united states 
Well, they've been here so long that uh, a lot of people do think that. And it also yeah. amazes me the number of people in South here in South Carolina. You talk to people. We've got them in every county in the state of South Carolina. And yet you mm-hmm. talk to people in the in the Palmetto State and they have no idea that we've got wild pigs here. Wow. Always a lot of wild tales and things. But, you know, this is a, an important topic because this has become what probably. Yeah, absolutely. After whitetail, if you consider them, you know, a, a big game animal, the number two populous big game animal in North America would be. That is be, true. That is true. They are, they are the second most numerous large, large wild animal in, in uh, North America. Absolutely. And, and as far as hunted, the sex second only to whitetail deer. So, yeah. And it's interesting. If you look at Texas, our numbers of hog harvest are higher than our deer numbers, but that includes trapping as well. Uh, and so, you know, lots, but still populations keep growing. Now, uh, you know, there's lots of talk about, you know, how big hogs can get in the wild. Um, in terms of, now, there's been a lot of like, you know, like feral looking domestic, like Durox and stuff released on hunting ranches and shot, you know, uh, that I've seen in different places and things like that over the years. Uh, what's the l- legit largest like free roaming wild hog you've ever been aware of? If you if you've seen a weight on. All right. So what is a wild hog? Wild hog is a is, or wild pig is a collective term that would include uh, pure Eurasian wild boar. Sure. Would also include those domestic animals that have gone wild, the feral yeah. end of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then because they're the same species. These mm-hmm. feral hogs and these Eurasian wild boar, they will hybridize. So you've got three types of, of wild pigs or wild hogs here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, oddly enough, this species, as, as a domestic animal, uh, will go wilder quicker than any other domestic animal that we have. This is something that's been recognized as far back as the time of Charles Darwin. Mm-hmm. That you take a pig and turn it loose, it'll go wild in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, more so than cats or dogs or horses or anything else. Uh, and when it goes wild, it uh, again becomes a wild animal and, and is is aware of threats and whatnot. So, you know, it, it potentially could become dangerous. So the question then becomes, well, what is a wild hog? Well, it's all three of those types. Yes, you will strike. Welcome to Sci Fly Fishing, where we explore the outer limits of stream, shore, wade, flats, and fly fishing. Color choice can drive an angler crazy. I mean, look at any angler's tackle box. You're going to see a myriad of colors, but you'll probably come across some colors that are favorites of anglers. There's something I recommend to anyone who fly fishes for panfish, and this is especially true in the American South, because I live down here. And these colors are always out there in the insect kingdom in particular in nature. Never leave home without red and black flies. Now you need some black flies, you're probably going to need some red flies. But combination red and black flies have been tremendous for me. While I was having real difficulty cracking the code on crappie, red and black did the trick. When I went to Florida recently and was fishing for cichlids, including Mayan cichlids and jaguar cichlids, and even caught tilapia, the code cracker was red and black. When I fished some bayou water near here, where the water was a little bit dirtier than I normally fish in the private lakes I fished for bass, I put the red and black on, 
and it did the trick. You know, in the spring here, we have what are called love bugs. And they have like a, a deep orange reddish sort of spot on their head. And they have a small black body. And maybe that's what it's mimicking here. But I'm telling you, whether it's Florida, whether it's Texas, when I take the smaller flies, your nymphs, your small terrestrials, I always have one that's black and red. With black being the majority color and a touch of red somewhere. And for whatever reason... That does the trick. I've had days where I went out and I had a solid black one and got one or two brim. Switched over to one the exact same pattern. However, it had a touch of red and caught them. It doesn't always work, but it's the one thing I keep going back to. So if you're going out there and making some of your fly selections, maybe you're traveling to a different part of the country and thinking, man, I'm going to go catch some brim or I'm going to go catch some crappie or some bass. Don't overlook the colors. Black and red would help you get it done whether the water's dingy, clean, or somewhere in between. If you would like more sci fly fishing, get exclusive segments on Higher Calling Wildlife, the podcast. Also, listen to my podcast, Dark Outdoors. Both are available on all major podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Music, iHeartRadio, Amazon, and others. It, uh some of the local hunters used dog hunters uh, caught just north of the site. That was a domestic boar that had mm -hmm. escaped mm -hmm. and was a, uh, was a, a wild hog at that point. It was, it was mm -hmm. tearing up crops and, mm -hmm. and chasing chickens and whatnot. And it, it weighed in at, at 750 pounds. Man. So and it, it was legitimately a, a, a wild animal at that point. So, yeah. it, you know, depending on if you get an animal that's raised in a pen, to maturity yeah uh and then gets away and goes wild uh it legitimately becomes a wild animal so you know yeah you could get in quotes wild hogs wild pigs that go six seven even eight hundred pounds okay well they're, you know it's they're, not, they're not going to get that way in the wild on their own they've got to be yeah. raised in the pen first but You're that sure. doesn't mean they aren't a wild hog when they're when they uh when they get shot well, there were two different people in my region that I, that I came across that had islands that they had uh, leased for cattle on two different river systems here. And they would go buy these big hogs at the auction. All right. And they would put them on the islands to, quote, control snakes, to eat snakes. And uh, and I a cousin of mine went camping on one of these islands one night and he wakes up and there's this like 500 pound white boar <laughs> at the end of his tent wanting food. You yeah, know? hey buddy, you got any food? <laughs> yeah. And it's like it, it, you know, this guy went out there and supplemented food or whatever, but I guess you're saying it wouldn't take long for that hog or its generations if it decided to swim out and go live with others to get in a truly wild state and be out there and be part of that population. Yeah, that's 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 very true. I can't put a, an actual. I've heard people say, "Well, it only takes so long." Well, I, I'm not sure you put an actual time yeah. limit on it, but very quickly they will go wild. What a fascinating show tonight with great experts and being able to talk about even in this last segment with Dr. Jack Mayer about the introduction of domestic hogs and how that impacts hog size in certain areas. You can follow me at the Chester Moore on Instagram, Higher Calling Wildlife on Facebook, HigherCalling.net, my award-winning blog. God bless you and have a great outdoors weekend.